the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Hey, welcome to the uh, second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner program. Over the next couple hours, we're going to be talking about the um, Christmas time murder of uh, six-year-old... Um, beauty pageant Queen JonBenet Ramsey in Boulder, Colorado. Um, the discovery of uh, JonBenet Ramsey's brutally murdered body on the morning after Christmas in 1996 in a spare room in the basement of the family's 7,000 square foot home in the uh, Chautauqua neighborhood of Boulder, Colorado shocked the nation, but it was the events that unfolded after that truly raised eyebrows and scratched heads to the extent that there is still no definitive answer to as to what happened on that winter evening 
and it's been 25 years. So over the next couple hours, we're going to talk about this particular case and some of the things that have arisen from it in terms of investigation, corruption, um, and all kinds of aspects of this with someone who's been following it for a long time. He is uh, a... uh, forensic tech and videographer he's been on the show several times he's been watching looking into this case for a long time roscoe clark who joins me by phone and he's going to be inviting other people to join us as well roscoe welcome back it's good to uh, have you back on the show again well thank you for having us and uh let's see who else do we have on the line uh um, roscoe derek uh, called in right right after you did yeah derek's part of our document lab out of minneapolis minnesota so when it comes to the paper trail you're collecting forensic facts he's the one that uh, takes care of that well hi derek welcome to the show to you as well oh thanks thanks for uh, having me on um there there are so many things to talk about with regard to this uh this case this really was one that grabbed headlines when it happened 25 years ago But it continues to draw headlines, movies of the week, uh, cable uh, documentary series, um, you know, all of these different treatments of it. Why is it, first of all, why is it unsolved? And I know that's a big question. And why are we still interested 25 years later? Who's going to, Derek, go ahead if you'd like. Well, um, I... uh there are, there are many reasons why it could be unsolved. Uh, I think uh, a good question would be why did it become a national story to begin with? Uh, there, uh, you know, there's lots of unsolved homicides in America. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of them uh, most people don't even know about. You know, and murder is such a common uh, thing in our society that uh, oftentimes people don't even remember the victims. Um, I, th- I think it's something that just sort of uh, uh, caught people's attention and, uh, you know, just kind of sp- uh, spiraled from there, I guess. Uh, we want to we add a little detail because we, we dive in deep behind the scenes, and there's always reasons for everything. Back then you had CNN, Headline News, and you had the O.J. Simpson, and they had to fill in 24 hours a day, and there was not a lot of new stuff at the beginning, and this happened after that, and it caught people's attention because it played over and over and over again. And then when they found her beauty uh, pageant pictures, that shocked people because the public wasn't aware of uh, little girls uh, performing in these types of uh, shows. So it, it shocked people. Uh, then a lot of different ideas came up, which... Uh, made it more interesting well right from the very right from the very beginning roscoe it was um stated by investigators that there were two possibilities one that it was an inside job a family member or friend that was you know in the house the other was that it was an intruder there were those two tracks right from the beginning and some were drawn to look at the parents initially. That's that's because the crime was committed in the house, the residence, the parents' house. What triggered that was when the officers got there around 6 a.m. 
around 5.52 a.m., Patsy Ramsey, John Ramsey, asked her to call 911 because they didn't know what else to do. The ransom note said, don't call the police or she'll, she'll be killed. But they said they didn't know what else to do, so they, they called the police. Patsy did from the kitchen wall phone. They got there just before 6 o'clock. Very dark out, very cold. A little bit of snow in the front yard. The rest of the yard was clear of snow, but there was a heavy frost everywhere on all the sidewalks, the landscaping, the grass. So if anyone within a few hours overnight came or left from that house, they would have left frost track marks, frost. That's very important, and there was none. And so they assumed that this crime from midnight till 6 a.m. must have had someone enter the house and then exit it and not left track. So they said, well, then this has to be an inside job. But what the police and the investigators didn't know forensically is that the intruders, which we have identified three, were still in the basement with John Bonet. They didn't leave the house at 6 a.m. Neighbors see them leave from the north side, the butler kitchen door, about 30 minutes after the police were there and even searched the basement and didn't open up the door to a wired shut, temporary wired shut, wine cellar door where John Bonet was found and the intruders were hiding when the police did a walkthrough looking for entry points. Well, uh, so let's, let's, what, talk about, let's talk about that door for a minute because what, what happened right from the time that Patsy discovered the note on the on the stairs that led from from the second story of the house down to the kitchen, um, she found this ransom note, which is interesting in and of itself for a variety of reasons. But it started everyone that showed up, the the first responders, the police that were on scene initially, thinking they were dealing with a kidnapping. So when they did the search, the fact that that door was wired closed, an officer actually walked up to that door and didn't open it because he didn't think anybody that had gone that way and found an exit could have wired that door shut. So he just completely blew that off. And it was several hours before John Ramsey opened that door and found his daughter in there uh, killed. That is correct. So we can understand how this happened. It probably wasn't any deliberate mistake. It, there was fresh paint. The Ramseys painted the house. They smelt paint down there. The officer in one report may have thought it was painted shut. Uh, so those are, are possibilities. And, and then, John, and, and this is something Derek might want to weigh in on because um, John Ramsey did something that you're never supposed to do, and that's he picked up the body and carried her right. up into the other part of the house it admittedly distraught but at the same time completely obliterating the integrity of the crime scene yeah yeah it's uh it's not something that should have done uh, of course the uh it's not standard procedure to have uh people in the house search the house you know by themselves um uh, that's normally something that the police would do. And so uh, a situation that could have been avoided had they, had, they op had they opened the door when they were first down there earlier in the morning. Uh, of course, two people opened the door uh, in the early morning. The, the police officer went down. He thought it was wired shut. 
and then about oh, 15 minutes later, uh, one of the Ramsey's friends did a quick search of the basement, and he was able to open the door. And so uh, Roscoe might be able to chime in. We think in between those 15 minutes, they moved from the, uh, the intruders, they moved from the wine cellar door over to the elevator shaft, uh, which ex kind of explains why the police were not able to open the door, but the but the uh, Ramsey family friend, the White Fleet White, was able to open the door quite easily. He even picked up the tape that was on the blankets. There was a couple blankets there. John Bonet was wrapped in like a Hispanic Mexican papoose. That's very important because one of the intruders that we have identified DNA wise as well recently we've been sending this dna information into the boulder police through several major sources and they responded boulder police responded in the last few hours about dna since they've been quiet for many years dna is the topic because of all the dna samples we're testing and sending in from certified labs now when we say we've got a, a dna match we're matching all the markers that we we have available uh, the original is like 13 markers, so we can't match more than 13 because we don't have the, the latest DNA, the 21. But we're hitting hard on these, so these people that we've got as persons of interest absolutely cannot be ruled out. We believe, with a large amount of work behind it, that we have identified seven people involved, not in the house, three in the house, but seven involved to make this crime work. And we've got a lot of supporting evidence, actually hundreds and hundreds of pages to back this up. So it's forensics, not wishful thinking or imagination. I wanted to mention one thing. That first question you started, why did this case somehow become real popular? Well, where John Bonet's dog was, the watchdog across the street, uh, stayed, and John Bonet and Burke was babysitted there, one of the relatives, we'll say daughters, worked for a major uh, TV network, ABC, and provided the producer, which was Diane Sawyer, information about this case. So, so much inside information that the police said, how is the networks getting all this inside information where they actually put three producers in Boulder uh, what was the, the feed, Derek, that was, they were being... It was actually, it was actually five producers Oh, was it five? Yeah, what I was able, yeah, what I was able to find out through documents, because that's what we do in this neck of the woods is documents, is that uh, of the family uh, that we, the neighbor's family that we believe ha uh, was involved in the planning of this crime, one of the family members was a major ABC news producer. Not only that, but uh, was in severe debt at the time of the crime. And so, uh, that is that right there. I think is probably a major contributor as to why this uh, crime went national the way it did. They uh, had a direct. They I'll, had a direct link of all the inside information. Um, hey, it's just yeah. amazing. Guys, we we have to take a sh uh, short break here for about four minutes, and uh, I hope you'll you'll both stand by so we can continue. Um, 
we're uh, going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. When we come back, the uh, city of Boulder has posted a statement on the 25th anniversary of the John Bonet Ramsey murder on their website. And we'll Everybody's hear that doing when we come back. brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. And the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our look at the uh, 25th anniversary of the John Benet Ramsey murder that happened at, uh, well, Christmas and the day after she was discovered the day after Christmas in 1996. The city of Boulder has uh, put a statement up on their website that says the following, and we'll see what our guests uh, have to say about some of their comments. As of December 2021, the Boulder Police Department has processed more than 1,500 pieces of evidence related to the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey. Jean Benet was six years old when she was reported missing on December 26, 1996 after her family reported finding a ransom note inside their home in the 700 block of 15th Street. Her body was found in a basement room, and a later autopsy revealed that the cause of her death was strangulation. As of December 2021, that evidence has included the analysis of nearly a 1,000 DNA samples. The Boulder Police Department Major Crimes Unit has received, reviewed, or investigated more than 21,016 tips, letters, and emails, and detectives have traveled to 19 states to interview or speak with more than 1,000 individuals in connection to this crime. Thanks to the huge advances in DNA technology, multiple suspects have been run through the system to check for matches. CBI has updated over 750 reference samples with the latest DNA technology. The Boulder Police Department works closely with CBI on future DNA advancements. Additionally, Boulder Police have worked with CBI to ensure the DNA in the system can be compared correctly to new DNA samples that have been uploaded to ensure accuracy. That DNA is checked regularly for any new matches as the department continues to use new technology to enhance the investigation. It is actively reviewing genetic DNA testing processes to see if those can be applied to this case moving forward. Anyone with information related to this investigation is asked to contact our tip line at area code 303-441-1974, Boulder's Most Wanted at bouldercolorado.gov, or Northern Colorado Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Or, uh, no, uh, 
I guess it's uh, N-O-C-O, North uh, Colorado Crime Stoppers.com. Anyway, that's the, uh, the statement that is uh, on the uh, City of Boulder's uh, website currently as their statement on the 25th anniversary of the Jean Benet Ramsey murder. And I have uh, Roscoe Clark back with me. Derek is, uh, I think, with me as well. Welcome back, guys. Yep. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Very good. That's no, okay. Um, how, how do you react to what, what the city of Boulder has said about the uh, largesse of, uh, of their attempts to solve this crime? Well, here's, here's kind of where we're at and what our thoughts are from our perspective. Earlier in the year, Derek and, and our, our team uh, organized some DNA collections of evidence. And so we got evidence legally through different processes, and we sent it into certified labs, multi-labs, to see if the persons of interest that we have lots of documents on supporting that these people were involved could be DNA ruled out. We always try to rule people out, just the opposite of what people think. Most of our work is trying to rule people out forensically because we surely wouldn't want to go in a direction of an innocent person. When the certified lab results come back to us, we have a second lab tested from a different area, different state, different techniques, you know, different uh, locations, and we get the same exact results. That's really impressive. We've matched all the known markers that have been made public. We're matching those. So the people that we are testing absolutely cannot be ruled out. But without having the 21 markers of today's standards, we can't 100% rule them in because it's, it's being compared to a mixture of about three people, the panning mixture, the right and left side inside and out of the lawn johns. So we're excited because we are matching the best we can do. Now, to bring this case forward, and a lot of experts will agree with this, Boulder Police needs to, to the experts, release the full DNA that they've been uh, holding on to for the last couple years. That would allow a Lou Smith uh, group to, to, that's doing continuous DNA samples of a suspect list that Lou had it, to, to allow them, as well as us and others, to zero in on these people forensically. And that's what needs to be done. If anything needs to be done on Boulder's part, release the current DNA numbers, the profile, so then those that are out there in the work in this case can move it to the next step. Well, when you say uh, comparing DNA, uh, from what to what? Well, they, they, they collected original DNA samples. They, they updated it in 2008. We're using those Are these the numbers. touch samples that I've read about yes. uh, from yes. clothing Bode, and so Bode on? Technology was one of the people. They're one of our suppliers, so I work with Bodie uh, from time to time. Uh, they did um, a lot of testing there, you know, the advanced test, testing. They're a big operation. Bodie's the one that did all the DNA samples for the 9-11 when the uh, when that came down and they only had bone fragments and they identified a lot of people. So they're highly qualified and capable, got a good track record. So this DNA where you we're collecting and comparing to is what's been made public through the years, mainly the 2008 samples. Uh, we need to be more current 
in the last year or so, and there are a lot of items of evidence that could be tested. We have a system called the wet vac. It sprays a sterile liquid on a surface. It's like a car uh, seat, like a car wash wand for vacuuming up. You're spraying a liquid and vacuuming it. It reminds me of that. And so it's up to 200 times better than a swab. FBI earlier in the year said it's at least 12 full times better at collecting DNA on textured and rough surfaces like a rock. We've got that, uh, that technology in our cold case lab, and I would love to have the capability of uh, taking the brick that hit John Bonet in the head after the 911 call. She was damaged. And the person that handled that brick most likely didn't have gloves on because they left a lot of DNA on John Bonet. You know, when they carried her from, let's say, the laundry room and then took her to the floor of the 10 by 12 foot wine cellar, it's a storage room. Uh, the public called it a wine cellar. John Ramsey said we never used it as a wine cellar. It was just a storage room. But she was put there, but she was hit, stabbed, hit, and uh, hit with a bat as well. And that brick, we could get, I'm, I'm pretty sure we could get a profile. We have the technology. And uh, it wouldn't take much. So uh, we would be glad to let Boulder use this equipment free of charge if they wanted to go to the next step. So that we do have new technology that can be used that hasn't been used so far. Now, in the course of this investigation, and we talked uh, just briefly in the, in the first segment about how um, John Benet's father, John Ramsey, picked her up, moved her from the crime scene, which messed up the crime scene. But... There, there were some screw-ups by police, and ultimately, throughout this investigation, there was a lot of turnover in the personnel, the officials that were investigating. There were police officers who resigned. Um, there were prosecutors that were uh, replaced uh, multiple times. And, and there seemed to be a lot of friction between the Boulder Police Department and the prosecutor's office. How, how much did, did officials screw up this investigation? I think the officials messed it up pretty good. But forensically, I've always hear this, and, and being a forensic-trained uh, person, the the people John moving John Bonet from the wine cellar up to the foyer of the front room, and then the the lady officer there moving her on a rug to the Christmas tree in the front room. That didn't hurt this crime whatsoever. The the DNA in her panties and on her lawn johns weren't affected by that. Um, the blankets were there. The tape was there. What happened there was not any real concern whatsoever in solving this case, and they use that as an excuse. The officials, um, Derek, you could comment on that, on some of the things that we've uncovered. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I, uh, for reasons that, you know, we're looking into, um, the police got back some DNA results. They actually tested a family member uh, of our, uh, our persons of interest group and a... Uh, the uh, CBI, Colorado Bureau of Investigation, um, uh, reported their results of our when they tested one of the family members of our people of interest. They they told the police, "Well, this person's family can't be ruled out 
as being part of the DNA mixture. Everyone else they tested so far could be ruled out except this person, but they uh, they chose not to uh, follow the uh, follow that information. And so, um, what what it's what it's looking like is the police had a good DNA hit back in January or February of 1997 to the persons of interest that we're looking at, but uh, just chose not to follow it. And and uh, the records indicate that that report may still be sealed to this day. Uh, and so it's, it's, so it's, it's, it's possible that they had some family DNA of those responsible or more than possible, I should say, back in January and February of 97. And so uh, this investigation probably shouldn't have taken $2 million and interviewing a 1,000 people. Uh, once they got that information that the family members' uh, DNA could not be excluded, they should have tested everybody in that family. Uh, but... but uh, you know, but they chose not what, to. And that's what we're doing, and we're getting these high-level hits, high-level match matches, high-level. And it's more than just DNA. We have a lot of forensic evidence putting them there. This group that was involved, mainly family members, had a, a background of problems before and after the crime. But And I'm going to repeat that again. We added up a lot of the court records. This group was over $400,000 in debt, court orders, judgments, foreclosures, uh, marriage, uh, alimony, everything you could think of. So when they asked for that $118,000, people said, well, that's too small of an amount to retire on. This was not a retirement amount. This was just to get by in a, in a crisis situation. These people were somewhat homeless. Uh, didn't have vehicles. They had judgments you can't get out of. They were in a disaster right before Christmas. So when right. John Ramsey when John Ramsey announced that, you know, he was worth millions of dollars and he was a neighbor and they had a lot of inside information because uh JonBenet and Burke uh, had connections with these people. Uh the dog, think about that. JonBenet's watchdog, this crime couldn't have been performed inside the house. The intruders and the organizers of this crime had to know where JonBenet's dog was so this crime could even be done. There, there's so much information here that supports the seven that's involved. And we, we cannot say the names. People say, well, give us the names. Well, you're, you're innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. And if we were to, to tell the names of the people that the DNA is matching, then their attorneys, which they have, uh, would sue us for defamation of character and slander because that's not our position. We do the research and the forensics. Uh, a court will have to release that. So people ask that all the, all the time. So we have to be careful we don't violate that rule. Well, and there have been uh, many, many uh, lawsuits connected to this case for that very reason. Yeah, it'd be real easy to do, I'll tell you. When you got that much forensic evidence. Now, what I was mentioning earlier, in the early spring, we collected samples, you know, uh, items of interest, had them tested, certified labs, and we had to have it sent to Boulder Police through different avenues. One avenue was through the Boulder District Attorney's Office, uh, through the, the Denver FBI, 
uh, even locally, because one of the intruders, you know, Ron Ramsey's from Michigan, so there's a lot of Michigan connections to this case that the public's not aware of. So we even had the famous Chris Swanson from Genesee County, his undersheriff, is looking into it because of a Genesee County connection, and they've taken the samples and reports, and they uh, had that sent through the Detroit FBI because we work with FBI pass agents. So uh, Derek uh, was in many, many, um, from Minneapolis, Minnesota, traveled to Boulder not too long ago, and actually uh, made additional contacts. You can explain that if you'd like, Derek. Sure, sure. We. Uh... I thought as, as long as I'm in Colorado, I'd give some of my information to the, uh, the state attorney general's office. Um, and I went to the FBI, but it's hard to get in the FBI, but I did, was able to get the information in. Uh, and so, and so they're on, on notice, uh, as well of the, uh, information that we've collected. We, we, so. we've had, we've had two uh, police detectives, a lady, uh, her name was, Earlier in the year, uh, she's a, a lady investigator, spent a couple hours with us, and Tom uh, had handled the case. Now, there's two officers that handled the case 25 years ago <clears throat> that's still there. They're in high official positions, and they still handled the case. So they're basically, the only, they're, we were told, the only two that's even allowed to look at it. Everyone else is not. So anything that's being done or not being done, these two would be the ones that's uh, involved. And you, you've got their names, Derek. Yeah, uh, Commander Tom Terhill, who heads investigations, and Commander Ron Gazage and support services. They're uh, they're the only two that are allowed to look at this case, unless they unless they assign somebody else to it. But uh, uh, it, it's they're they're the only two in the police department that are allowed to look at it. Tom called me a few of uh, a little while ago about the, the the new DNA matches. We spent about forty eight minutes in a real high level information exchange phone conversation. Uh, he emailed me. We're 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 adding to the case uh, with the latest at our end. So we're doing everything we can do uh, to send in good solid evidence, not wishful thinking or not imagination, but rock solid forensics. Uh, we don't want to waste anyone's time, um, and so what we're sending in is carefully studied, tested, certified, and now being sent in. And so all summer, we've been involved with DNA, so I'm not surprised that their press release on their website is talking about DNA, because uh, we, our impressions and our statements to Boulder is that we are solving this case forensically, and DNA is going to be what helps, you know, does that. Roscoe, Roscoe, when did you first start looking into this? About 10 years ago. That's what I was and thinking, I, that it was about 10 years ago. And it wasn't to get involved at this level. It was just to do a, a six-month study, a documentary of Michigan history. John Ramsey is uh, John's brother from here. John's dad was the FAA president you know, of Michigan Pilots Association. Uh, he went to Michigan State University, got a lot of uh, you know connections to Michigan. So... I wanted to do some Michigan programming because uh, I, I got that background, you know, documentary and so on. It's well, John and Patsy Ramsey had a, a vacation home in Charlevoix. Yeah, and they still have the home there today. Burke works out of a home there in Charlevoix with his computer business. When I met John Ramsey the first time, I went and videoed. 
his book talk. He did a second book um, that that he produced, and he went to his church and had a full house crowd, and his new wife Jan was there. Nice people, and and I got to uh, video it for him. It was their equipment that they rented, and I was very familiar because I had the same cameras in my in my vehicle. So I volunteered and videotaped it for him, and I he did a very nice job with the the group there. He any questions that were asked. He answered them. There was nothing to hide. One thing I want to make make a statement is John Ramsey's never paid us a cent. We know him only through a professional environment, and there's not one item of evidence that connects the Ramsey family to this crime, meaning they weren't involved. They didn't kill John Bonet. They didn't they'd take their money to influence anything, and I see that a lot. The Ramseys had nothing to do with them. They just was a, a good family that made good income. They had lots of employees and became a target to the organizer, the organizers who zeroed in on the Ramses and, and got other people involved and produced this crime that failed in the end. Now, initially, you said there was an organizer and, and two or three intruders when we first started talking about this. How did that number grow to seven? Forensics. So here's a quick overview. Okay, the organizer lived in a basement across the street from the Ramseys. And he has a history with four wives of marrying people that had money. When the money runs out, the wives kick him out. Uh, he, he had like 45 major lawsuits in his life. I mean, we've got thousands of pages on this guy from when he was a track writer uh, in school and college to yeah. when he died with a big shrine in Indiana. He had the big shrine in Indiana uh, when they had a fire. Uh, that's when that got exposed. But what he did was he made contact with another individual closely connected to the neighborhood. We call him the leader. The leader had direct family connections, young people, 20, 21, 23, and so on, that could actually do the crime. And so then there was a lookout car person that uh, went by Fleet Whites and a Jaguar that they've noticed. And so we've connected all these people, the cars, the dealers. Yeah. Uh, and so what yeah. we've got is an organizer, a leader, three intruders, a transport person. That's a person that was up on the hill at the end of 15th Street to look out to do the money exchange. And then the car driver that monitored when the Ramseys uh left the party because yeah. these things had to be done it, it these are seven more or less family people some of them lived together others were married now the dna the dna is a mixture some experts say a mixture of three well what confused people is the markers the ones in the dna uh, business saying things don't add up we're not sure is it two people is it three well two of the intruders were brother sister and you share a certain amount of DNA with yeah. your brother and sister, except they had different fathers. So that's why the DNA has been kind of confusing the people. We've uncovered yeah. that. And now that explains the issues, some of the issues with the DNA. Yeah. With the, uh, the, when it comes to how we went from four people involved to seven, and that's just what we have right now. Uh, and there were, Beyond the seven, there are other people who know about it who may not have been involved but know about it. Derek, uh, Derek was, I'm going to have yeah. you pause there because we have to take another break. But I want to pick up. Oh, on, sure. I want to pick up on this evolution of persons of interest, and uh, 
uh, more when we uh, when we come back with Roscoe and Derek after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOV 92.1 LPFM Flint, uh, a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. And if you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. More uh, about the 25th anniversary. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination. Freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about the uh, 25th, uh, uh, for the 25th anniversary of the killing of John Benet Ramsey in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Roscoe Clark, who has been on the show many times, been following this uh, in in participating in the investigation for over 10 years and uh, is Derek with him just before the break we were talking about the evolution of persons of interest it for a long time revolved around four people that were uh, a mastermind and in three intruders into the uh, Ramsey home and uh, I think Derek you were talking about how that number went from four to seven yeah yeah uh, and the way I was do that, the way I, one of the reasons we went from four to seven, we'll go to one particular line in the ransom note that says, they're talking to John Ramsey here. It says, we respect your business, but not the country that it serves. Now, for years, that line has confused people. They think to themselves, well, what in the world does that mean? We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. If you don't know the backstory, I would agree that it's very confusing. But what I did was the neighbor's family across the street where the organizer lived, I went from family member to family member, and I looked up court documents. Uh, At least four members of the family were being hit very hard with IRS tax liens all at the same time. Which family, Derek? the uh, the, uh, the the one where the organizer lived. Not the not the Ramses. Not the Ramses. No. Okay. I just want to make uh, that I just want to make that clear, and I understand why you're avoiding using names, and I appreciate that. But I don't want people to accidentally think that oh, we right. started talking about the Ramses. That's all. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, I understand. And so, and so when I, um, these tax liens. Uh, put them so far into the hole that at least three family members, because of these tax liens, at Christmas time, three fam like all this was happening to all the family members all at the same time. These 
federal tax liens were actually causing at least three family members to face eviction within weeks or months of this crime occurring uh, after this crime occurred. And so when you look, so when they're saying in the ransom note, we respect your business, but not the country that it serves. They're saying, yeah, we don't have a problem with your business, but uh, the country that level, you know, the, uh, the country that levels taxes on your business, we're, we're not very happy with that right now. And so in the, in the, uh, in the scope of all these federal tax liens that I found, now that line makes sense. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. They're saying, yeah, we don't have a problem with your business, John. We just don't like the fact that uh, the taxing authority is putting us in the hole. And so, uh, so what I did was the neighbors, the, the neighbor's family, I went from one family member to the next. And what I found out was several family members, more than a few, were all being, were all in severe financial uh, 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 debt all at the exact same time. So if you want to talk about a ticking time bomb of debt, uh, that that that's the profile of the of the family we're researching. Now John Douglas, FBI profiler, he became a friend. He worked this case. He worked on it. He did the sound checks that a child could scream in the basement and you couldn't hear it on the second and third floor where the family's bedrooms were. So people questioned that how could a child scream the neighbors heard it through a hole a vent hole in the front window and the the, the people across the street, two different neighbors heard the scream. Uh, it's in the official record. So what John Douglas told me, and he's made public, that this was a personal cause homicide for money. It was a personal cause homicide, and the motive was money. And so that got us on track to check the finances of all the persons of interest, and every one of them had a going into bankruptcy and failure. So we know what the cause was. Now, to perform a crime that they didn't have a place of operation, they didn't have the money, they didn't have the vehicles and everything else. John Bonet was taken from the second level to the finished, rarely used, large basement. Well, so let me, the crime let me was ask, committed in the house. Let, let me let me ask this, and and it um, since you brought up the uh, the acoustics and uh, a child screams couldn't be heard from that room in the cellar. Um, on the second and third floor of the house where people were sleeping. But how did these people, the intruders, get into the house and get Jean Benet Ramsey into that room without well, creating something? noise that could be heard? Well, yeah, okay, this is real good. Now, forensically, we're going to answer it based on facts. The house had over 100 windows, 11 doors. Some of them were unlocked. A lot of ground floor windows were unlocked, Christmas cords hanging out. Real easy to enter the house. The back door, called the kitchen door in the back hall, very dark area, no street lights in the neighbor, Ramsey's neighbor's uh, neighborhood there. The back alley is completely dark. Uh, there was jimmy, wood chips, where the someone tried to jimmy in the door. And so they could have easily entered the back kitchen door. We know they exited out of the butler kitchen door. It's on the north side, the opposite side. So what they did was they came into the house, according to witnesses, around 5 o'clock Christmas night. The Ramseys just left for the Whites, a Christmas dinner. They'd done that three years in a row. Uh, neighbors in the area knew 
their schedule. So it wasn't unknown. So they, the neighbors had inside information and they stayed there to about nine thirty. And this is when one of the people of this crime, our persons of interest drove by the party house. It's like at a dead end. So they stood right out with a, a Jaguar car that was most likely borrowed through a close friend of this individual. So what they did is they, they kept themselves in the house from five o'clock on. And then when the Ramseys went to bed around 1030, uh, sometime after that, John Bonet is a hard sleeper. The neighbors knew this. They had that inside information that John Bonet's hard to wake up. They go into her bedroom on the second floor. It's to the back of the house, a big uh, three-story addition to the house, well far away, 60 feet away from the Burke or the, the parents that was up on the attic, uh, remodeled big attic, soundproofed when they remodeled that, made it even more soundproof, deliberately built that in. They picked her up. Now, how do you pick up a hard-sleeping child? Here's what forensic shows, white fibers on her pillow, white nylon fibers that match the cord that was used in the crime. They took a cord and wrapped it around her neck, a real silky, soft, strong nylon utility cord, not parachute cable. A lot of people promoted that. Never was parachute cord. It's a utility cord. They wrapped it around her neck, pulled it tight, and at the same time, the second intruder that's on the other side of her bed stun guns are on the back. Now, why choke her? She cannot scream. Why stun gun her? She cannot move. The stun gun marks were darkened, so she got a multi-level dose of stun gun, 50,000 volts. She would not be able to move for several minutes, and she couldn't scream. So they wrap her in two blankets that was taken from a clean stack of clothes by the washer and dryer just outside her room, wrapped her in, pulled the sheets and blankets and covers and pillows down, past her feet, wrapped her up like a Hispanic Mexican-style papoose. Now, some of the persons of interest, relatives, operate a daycare in that, that uh, from six months old up to about 13 years old, uh, daycare, and the kids, the little babies, are wrapped in papoose. So one of the intruders' uh, parents, uh, husbands, you know, was uh, the, one of the intruders' husbands, young at the time, parents op operated the daycare, and so that... Uh, explanation of being a papoose was easy to, to explain. They carried her down the back spiral staircase, two of them, and her hair, they'd carry her like under their shoulders, so her hair would be tipped down. The second guy would be a step or two up above. As they go around the spiral stairs, the garland and the green metallic transferred to John Bonet's hair. That's evidence. That's where it came from, from the decorations on the back step. How did it get there? Because of, she was rolled up. Uh, like a carpet roll and carried down. Now, they kept her choked. We know that because forensics shows the multi-choking to her neck. She was choked many times. Cord fibers were on the pillow. So we know that cord was there and pulled tight to get those fibers. She was taken down the basement steps to the basement, all finished basement, plastered walls, very soundproof and finished. Had bathrooms down there, uh, had a, a kitchen, showers, storage rooms, it was cluttered because it was more used as storage, but they had a, uh, even had a basement phone in the utility room to monitor if the Ramseys made any calls. So they had access. They had a perfect place there to, to do this crime. Who would think that anyone would kidnap a child to the basement of a large, you know, 6,800-square-foot house, plus the garage and the basement, you know, adds to that square foot. 
So they choked her at her bed instantly. She couldn't scream. Then they stun gunned her. She couldn't move in that order. That's very important because people said, well, how could uh, uh, someone get stun gunned and not scream? You would scream. But if you're choked, you can't scream. So uh, that kind of gives you an idea. Then they moved her to the downstairs. And at one point, they moved her to the countertop washer-dryer area uh, wrapped up in a papoose. And that's when... uh, the 911 call was placed. They could put tape over the phone with a handset, a little five-inch piece of tape. Roscoe, operator- i, I got to stop you there. we got to take another quick break for top-of-the-hour uh, show ID, but we'll come back with the second hour of our uh, remembrance. Hi, I'm Alexander right Sajic. Don't this. touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 